Good morning, and welcome to Beyond the Headlines. I'm your host, Connor Fraser. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at beyond underscore headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. Canada is one of the world's most energy-intensive economies. Per capita energy usage is five times the global average, 29% higher in the United States and triple that of the European Union. There is a significant opportunity for Canada to improve energy efficiency, which can provide 40% of Canada's energy needs by 2050. Today, we're sitting down with Efficiency Canada, the leading voice of energy efficiency in this country, to discuss their newly released Provincial Energy Efficiency Scorecard. The scorecard details regional progress on energy efficiency with aims of benchmarking progress, inciting competition, and sharing best practices. We are joined today by Dr. James Gady, a Senior Research Associate with Efficiency Canada. He holds a doctorate in political science from Carleton University. For the past 10 years, James has conducted research on energy and environmental politics, energy forecasting, energy storage, and carbon capture and storage. Previously, he held postdoctoral fellowships at both the University of Waterloo and Carleton University. The first part of our discussion, I wanted to focus on maybe an introduction to the scorecard. So what is exactly the Canadian Provincial Energy Efficiency Scorecard and how and why did your group come up with this great idea to publish the scorecard uh, on energy efficiency every year? Our scorecard is an annual report that we produce every year. And uh, the idea behind the report is to provide a transparent uh, methodology for benchmarking and comparing performance on energy efficiency and energy efficiency policies across the Canadian provinces. The idea behind the report is that it provides information both for policymakers and for people that might advocate for greater energy efficiency investments and uh, also to promote a little bit of healthy competition among the provinces. So the idea from for the scorecard, it's modeled after uh, a similar annual scorecard that's done in the States. I think it's been done since 2008 by an organization, the ACEEE. And so our scorecard is, is modeled after that and informed by some of the methodology in the ACEEE scorecard. Uh, but of course, we, we've made some adjustments to account for uh, the different situation in Canada. So how, does, how do we compare to the United States? Is our, are our leading provinces comparable to their leading states? Well, you know, that's an excellent and very timely question since the ACEEE just released their latest scorecard uh, on Wednesday. And um, my policy director, Brendan Haley, uh, did a brief look at some of the comparisons, uh, but we plan to do a little bit more thorough comparison in the new year. Uh, suffice it to say, uh, not great, <laughs> at least in terms of program savings. So that's the energy savings that we get from energy efficiency programs. Um, our leading provinces, our leading province would score maybe about 11th or 12th in the, in, uh, in the American 
scorecard. And some of the leading American states are achieving about double the amount of savings as a percentage of domestic sales. Wow, that's kind of counterintuitive. I would have, I would have thought we'd be way ahead, but I suppose there's a lot of variation within within America. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, so some of the leading states uh, in the U.S. they're northeastern states, also California, and uh, you know they have more robust and kind of comprehensive policy frameworks for energy efficiency in many ways, and they spend a lot more. Mm-hmm. That helps. Um, so you mentioned in your report uh, that provinces bear a major responsibility for the energy efficiency in Canada because they govern the public utility regulation, building codes, and municipal planning. And furthermore, uh, this might not be a bad thing since it allows the provinces to tailor their strategies to their individual circumstances. So what is one policy that stands out to you as a great example of a province tailoring its energy efficiency programs to a unique circumstance? Yeah, okay, so good question. I mean, I think to some extent, all provinces are tailoring their uh, approach to energy efficiency to meet local circumstances. But I think a good example would be prioritization of uh, low income energy efficiency programming in provinces out east, particularly Nova Scotia and PEI. Uh, So our scorecard looks at uh, spending on low income programs as a percentage of, of of people that would be experiencing energy poverty, which is not necessarily equivalent to people uh, that would be below a low income cutoff. And it so happens that rates of energy poverty are somewhat higher out east. And therefore, uh, some of the provinces out east have chosen to spend more on it, which is, I think, a good example of that. Mm -hmm. And um, conversely, what is the most obvious gap from any region that currently exists that could be addressed by a province-specific policy? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, you know, unfortunately, there's many gaps. um, But just continuing in the same vein, I I guess I would say that, uh, you know, Newfoundland, actually, Newfoundland and Labrador uh, does not match the low income, the levels of low income spending that some of its neighboring provinces do. And it could very well do that. So are there any other, which provinces lead in the spending on the low income category? <clears throat> um, I'm PEI and Nova Scotia, I think took the top two spots this year. Okay, interesting. Um, and why, why is that important? Like what are the, the benefits of targeting spending to this area? Sure. Well, you know, spending, uh, investing in energy efficiency benefits everybody, but uh, not everybody can afford to make those investments. Um, And so the motivation behind low income programming is that they offer, you know, a little bit better of a financial incentive, if not covering the cost of the project, um, that would benefit people that might not otherwise be able to invest in energy efficiency. And so that benefits both the people that receive the, you know, improvement in terms of, you know, the comfort of their homes and so on, but it also benefits the province more widely because they achieve greater energy efficiency savings than they otherwise would have. Now, the next part I would like to briefly, or not briefly, but do a more deep dive into the different sections of the report, starting with enabling policies. In terms of financing and market creation, you identify 
two policy categories, which are repayment mechanisms and credit enhancements. Can you introduce us to those, to those different tools? Sure. So uh, I guess the basic distinction is that um, a repayment mechanism is focused more on making it easier for you know, program participants to repay the cost of the energy efficiency improvement, uh, whereas a credit enhancement is focused more on mobilizing private investment. Uh, so what that looks like in practice is a repayment mechanism could take the form of, you know, uh, the ability to repay uh, a kind of soft loan provided by the government or by the utility company directly on your bill, or alternatively repaying a private loan on your utility bill. Another form of a repayment mechanism would be uh, property assessed clean energy, which is basically you roll the cost of the energy efficiency improvement into your property tax bill, and then you would be repaying the, the loan through your property taxes. The benefit of that one is that if the building changes hands, like if it's sold, that cost of the improvement transfers to the new owner. So uh, that reduces a bit of a barrier for people to invest in, in energy efficiency. Credit enhancement, on the other hand, is using public, some form of public support. It could be money, it could be monetary, it could be, it could be otherwise to basically reduce the risk profile for private investment to invest in energy efficiency projects. So would it be fair to say that um, a repayment mechanism is sort of a demand side mechanism, whereas credit enhancement is more of a supply side um, mechanism? Well, I think there I'm gonna I'm not sure because it's a little bit tricky, especially when you're talking about energy policy when you bring in terms like demand side and supply side. So, do you mean demand side? Like, can you just demand side in terms of like the people that would be seeking the financing, and then yes, supply exactly. side people that would be providing the financing? Exactly. No, I don't think so. I have not really thought about it in that way. But I mean, you can design repayment mechanisms that really do facilitate private investment as well. It's just mm -hmm. that they're focused more on how to repay and making it easier, I guess, than they are on mobilizing that private capital. Yeah, I guess with a, with a better repayment mechanism, a private investor would probably feel more comfortable making the investment anyway. So the lines are kind of blurred. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, I mean, the distinction is not as clear cut as it might seem, but you know, it's still worthwhile to make for sure. And in your report, it's pretty clear that the focus has been on repayment mechanisms and credit enhancement is fairly sparse. So how do you explain this disparity between the two policies? And should we be looking for more credit enhancing policies going forward as a way to get, get, a, get a market created or... Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so two questions there. Um, as to your first question, you know, what explains the, the apparent concentration on repayment mechanism? I, it's hard to say. You know, I think it would, it would, uh, it would call out for a more in-depth study to really figure it out. My inclination would be that it's easier in <laughs> yeah. a system dominated by one typically public utility company um, it's just easier to administer these types of programs through a public institution like that. 
you know, the one place that we do see, well, actually there's a couple places we see credit enhancements, but Alberta, uh, I think has, has, uh, is one case to note. Um, and that's slightly different in that there, you know, there isn't public utility companies there. There's private utility companies. And until recently, you know, Energy Efficiency Alberta, the Energy Efficiency Program Administrator. So, you know, my inclination would be that it might have something to do with different market setups in, in uh, utility systems. Um, but that's not to say that there isn't a place for credit enhancements in any, you know, uh, public utility system. Uh, but beyond that, I can't really say. And so the second question, the second part of that question was, do we need more credit enhancements, right? Yes. Uh, yeah, I would say so. I mean, uh, energy efficiency is, uh, is, is, is pretty much a solid investment. Um, but unfortunately, you know, not everybody recognizes that or is familiar with what exactly it means and what the kind of, uh, you know, what the kind of risk profile is on it. So, you know, I think, you know, Efficiency Canada, we would definitely like to see policy, a good policy mix, I would say, right? A diverse range of solutions intended to achieve a kind of similar outcome. Mm-hmm. And I guess the credit, the credit enhancements, you said they're a little bit more difficult. Um, yeah, I don't know where I was going from with that, but it just, yeah, it's interesting what you said about how the repayment mechanisms might be easier to set up and hopefully going forward down the road as these agencies have more and more experience, maybe they can set up some kind of credit enhancement. Yeah, I think it probably requires like a good deal, you know, to set up credit enhancements and have them work effectively. You, it needs it needs a lot of coordination between, you know, the private sector and the public sector that would be, you know, trying to implement these programs. The, the meaning of what I said when I, when I said that it might be easier to do uh, repayment mechanisms is that, you know, if there's a policy decision to provide support for financing, um, it's relatively simple to just implement that through the existing public utility system, right? You don't need to co coordinate with other, uh, with other parties and you can set aside the money and then implement it without worrying about whether or not, you know, people will participate so much. Another enabling policy you consider are demonstration projects. Could you help us understand what these demonstration projects are and why they are so important? Yeah, okay, so demonstration projects, uh, they're relevant in, in the energy efficiency sector for sure, but they're also kind of relevant in the broader energy system. So when we talk about demonstration, you know, the basic premise behind a demonstration project is that you have a technology or a practice or a combination thereof um, that is less proven than status quo conventional approaches to doing something. Um, and you want to make sure you want to see how well it works in a given in a, in a new context, but without fully, you know, jumping in with both feet. So you would, you know, implement a demonstration project, which would then test the ability of that technology or process to achieve its goals in the new context. And also demonstrate to, you know, the broader array of people that are interested to know, does it work, uh, that it can work and that it, that's a viable solution. So demonstration projects are relevant 
in many parts of the energy system and energy efficiency they can demonstration projects can range from you know testing cold climate heat pumps in uh, a slightly colder community to testing the ability of targeted investments in energy efficiency to serve as a as a non-wires solution to grid constraints I know that's getting a little technical, but. And do you see these demonstration projects taking place in Canada? And are there any provinces that are leading? So definitely they are taking place in Canada. I'm, I'm not sure I can say that any, pro, any province in particular is leading. I think in the scorecard, we detail a number of interesting pilot projects and demonstration projects in various different domains. Uh, we do have a section that looks at energy efficiency and non-wires alternatives or non-wire solutions, uh, which discusses some initiatives underway in various provinces to, to test that. Um, there's other provinces that are doing work, you know, demo, demo, uh, demonstrating cold climate heat pumps. I think we, we make some discussion of a program, a demonstration project in Prince Edward Island to that effect. Um, so definitely, uh, yes, they are taking place, but I, I wouldn't necessarily say that any one province is, you know, ahead of another in that, in that respect. Mm -hmm. So the next section of your report talks about uh, buildings and the building code and how there's this new building code that's coming out in 2020 or 2021 uh, that is a tiered national code. So British Columbia currently is the only province to implement a tiered building code for residential and commercial properties. What differentiates a tiered code from the framework currently in place in most provinces? So, you know, the way buildings codes work in Canada is that the federal government releases model codes and then provinces adopt them at some point. <laughs> so up until now, uh, those model codes have been kind of one thing, right? A full set of codes and provinces can adopt, you know, hopefully they adopt the latest version. Not all the provinces are the latest version for both, you know, there's two sides. There's small buildings, residential, and then there's large commercial buildings and multi-unit residential. So, you know, there's two ways that there's two sides to uh, adopting the codes. Um, a lot of provinces are fully caught up but not all of them. But any, in any case, what a province would do then is adopt that code and then maybe make some small adjustments to account for something particular about the province's energy system. Um, but that's it, There's, that's the code, the base code. So the idea, the idea behind a tiered code is that it lays out, it specifies in advance progressively more energy efficient tiers, which I think the idea behind that is that it's to provide a clear scaffolding for provinces and municipalities to walk themselves up that tier toward a more uh, ambitious uh, energy code over time. And what, as provinces move towards adopting these codes in preparation for the new model national codes that are gonna come into effect, what challenges are they going to face? Hmm. Well, uh, I don't. I'm not. I don't know if I can answer that question. I mean, I'm sure there's 
there's uh, you know local uh, provincial politics to consider. But beyond that, I, I'm I'm not sure. I mean the the uh, the codes, the model codes, the new not model codes will be released at the end. I think the idea is to they're going to be released at the end of 2021. Um, several provinces have legislation that basically requires them to adopt the model code within a certain amount of time. Um, so, you know, in theory, that process will be pretty streamlined and it will just end up happening in provinces without that. They have to, in order to adopt a code, there'll have to be some stakeholder consultations and discussions and perhaps training provided for the construction industry to understand, you know, what the implications of the new model code are. Challenges, maybe you could call them that. I wouldn't necessarily call them barriers. Just It's just part and parcel of the implementation of a building code in general. Okay, that's good. Because we don't want to see a huge blowback like we did with the carbon tax from some provinces. Uh, no, I mean, I, <laughs> yeah, that's a touchy subject. Um, I, would, I would hope and expect that building codes would not become as politically contentious. Later in the section on buildings, you evaluate the efforts of provinces to ensure compliance with their adopted building codes. And in the words of the scorecard, low compliance rates mean a jurisdiction will not achieve its energy saving and greenhouse gas reduction goals. Only Quebec and British Columbia have completed a compliance study in the past five years. How do you account for this large gap between provinces? Yeah, so I have no way to account for it. I'm not sure why uh, more provinces haven't conducted studies to assess the degree of compliance with the building code. Um, I, I should say that, you know, conducting a study after the fact is only one way of assessing compliance with the building code. There are multiple different avenues to try to facilitate compliance. But I think at the end of the day, um, no matter how well-trained the, you know, people might be the, how, how close of an inspection a building inspector might give a building before it's built. We don't, we won't know for sure uh, the degree of compliance until someone actually does a study. And so I have really no way of accounting for why that isn't a, uh, a priority for other provinces. Um, unfortunately. We all, we all just like living uh, with their heads in the sand. Yeah, like I don't, I mean, yeah, it, it, like, I, well, I don't, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if I can answer that question. Sorry. So how do we, how do we get there? Like, what are some tools that the leading provinces like British Columbia use to make sure that they have better compliance and what, how can other provinces learn from, from their example? Well, I think it's it's a little bit of what I was just trying to explain, the multiple different avenues that you can uh, facilitate compliance with a building code. So, you know, a good example of that is like training and professionalization, right? Um, provinces can, can support training and professionalization for all, you know, subsectors of the construction industry, which will help, uh, you know, it will both help people to understand what the requirements are, but also what is necessary to achieve them in, uh, you know, in a practical sense. Another section of the report on buildings presents your findings regarding disclosure requirements to make 
transparent and comparable the energy efficiency performance of new and existing buildings for consumers. Uh, the provinces are particularly bad when it comes to small and residential homes with only Alberta, British Columbia, Nova Scotia facilitating any ratings disclosure program. So do you see any evidence that consumers will eventually expect this information from developers implying the market will implement a better disclosure on its own? Or do we need government intervention here? Yeah, I think that, I mean, I would say that there's some evidence that uh, you know, consumers are going to value information about the energy efficiency of their homes, given that a lot of the programs that we see are voluntary. Uh, that being said, um, I think this is an area that provincial governments can take a little bit stronger step toward bringing that information out into the market and making it an important part of, you know, buying and selling buildings. And is it a relatively low cost thing they can do? Yeah, I mean, it should be, right? So, I mean, to give you an example, the, the federal government recently announced um, about $2.6 billion uh, for investing in, part of which will go to covering energy audits. So they want to, they want to complete 700,000 energy audits, building energy audits. So these energy audits will produce uh, an Energuide label, um, which then provides a very good basis for benchmarking and comparing energy, the energy efficiency profile of various different buildings in, in, in the provinces. We're going to take a moment for a short musical break. Here's the city by Darby Loves You. of the city This street used to seem so pretty I park trees and run down roads This new town feels so old The summer sun with the city glow I see a face I used to know I'd say I stay but no I won't The city streets don't feel like home Am I home far away? Are we here, here to stay? Far away, are we here, here to stay?
Driving past the lights of the city This street used to seem so pretty High park trees and run down roads This new town feels so old That was The City by Darby Loves You. Welcome back to Beyond the Headlines. At this point, I wanted to do a quick speed round to underscore the most significant findings of the 2020 Provincial Energy Efficiency Scorecard. What is a finding from the report that gives you the most cause for concern about the future of energy efficiency in Canada? Well, the singular one, I think, would be the dissolution of Energy Efficiency Alberta and mm-hmm. some of the indications in Ontario that they, the province might uh, be lowering budgets for energy efficiency, uh, given the size of these two provinces in terms of energy efficiency potential that could, that could uh, impact Canada uh, nationally. Um, What is the most optimistic finding of the 2020 Provincial Energy Efficiency Scorecard? I think I was particularly uh, pleased to find that Prince Edward Island had uh, moved up the rankings so much from our previous scorecard last year. Um, And could you share with us something that surprised you or shocked you while writing this year's scorecard? So this year... uh, one, a new metric that we introduced was spending on uh, energy efficiency programming for Indigenous peoples. And I was somewhat surprised to note that there is a very large variation between the leading provinces, uh, which were Prince Edward Island and Nova Scotia, and the rest of the provinces, which spend quite little in comparison. Yeah. Could you tell us more about that? So what, what has PEI um, done differently than the rest of the provinces? How do their spending programs look and how do they incorporate indigenous communities into energy efficiency? Well, I think, you know, the interesting thing about Prince Edward Island and Nova Scotia as well, that I think they scored quite well on, on, on spending for indigenous people because they have two, uh, both provinces had their own very um, targeted uh, pro, uh, sorry, initiative that was done in, in collaboration with First Nation, or indigenous people's communities in those provinces. And uh, I think that the, the close interaction between the two communities, or sorry, between government and the indigenous people's communities is what really you know, led to a concrete program outcome or program spending outcome. Yeah, so they, they really included them as a st- stakeholder from the very beginning, as opposed to just making a program and telling them that it existed, that they should jump on board. Yeah, I think that's an excellent way of putting it. Remember, you can join us in the conversation by tweeting at us on Twitter at capital V-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. Before the musical break, James and I were talking about energy efficiency disclosure requirements for buildings. Okay, so sorry, where was I? Oh, we were just talking about the disclosure requirements and how the $2.2 billion announcement is going to fund energy audits for existing homes, I think you implied. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. it, oh, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> so, no, you go ahead. I don't know. I'll... I was just going to say, is there um, a particular reason to explain why so many provinces have been un- unable to go forward with um, a rating system 
or disclosure requirements? I'm not sure uh, that I have a good answer to that question. You know, we do see, like I mentioned earlier, we do see some voluntary initiatives in several provinces. Uh, and in Ontario, there is a mandatory building energy rating and disclosure for commercial buildings of a set size. Now that program was set to expand, but then they kind of put that on ice for a couple of years. I'm not sure what the barrier is to implementing more widespread mandatory rating and disclosure programs. I guess it could just be lack of prioritization. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a little bit more about the Ontario program? Because that seems sort of interesting. Like, as I understood, they were supposed to publish a database online with all the results of hundreds of thousands of commercial buildings. It seems like a pretty interesting um, approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, uh, the, the gist of it is, is that commercial buildings over 100,000 square feet are required to have an energy rating. And then this energy rating is disclosed to the government, which then is going to make it public uh, in, a, in a public database. I believe that they have done that now. Um, at the time that we were writing the scorecard in the summer, um, that disclosure was, was yet to come, had not happened yet, but I, I believe that it should be available now. So, you know, the idea here, like any energy rating and disclosure program, is that it gives us good insight into, um, well, on one hand, it gives us good insight into the energy efficiency and energy consumption of very large buildings in the province. Um, but it also provides a way for owners and managers of those buildings to benchmark themselves against, you know, their competitors or, you know, buildings of a similar profile and give them an idea of how well or poorly they're doing and managing their energy consumption. Mm -hmm. and kind of like the, kind of like the sunshine list. <laughs> yeah. In a way. Yeah. 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 Benchmark. I mean, it, well, you know, in a way like the, the idea like a disclosure policy, I think to be maximally effective, it needs to be disclosed at the facility level publicly. Now, so much like the sunshine list discloses the incomes of individuals, right? That now, how that disclosure works is a different question, right? I think you know one way of disclosing it is just including that information when the building is being bought or sold publicly, right? Okay, so the next section of the report um, deals with transportation, uh, which is really interesting uh, for me actually because I'm an electrical engineer and I have a bunch of friends that work for electric vehicle companies. Um, and I guess the, the focus of your report on transportation is electric vehicles and electrification of transport. And Canada has a national target to achieve 10% of all new vehicle sales uh, as electric by 2025. But electric vehicle registration in most provinces isn't even one-tenth of the way to this target. Is this a case where the federal government has set a, a target that is too ambitious that people are trying but struggling to meet, or do these numbers reflect a failure of multiple provinces to promote electric vehicles where they could easily meet the target if they tried? Right. Okay. So uh, more of the latter than the former. And let me explain myself. 
because there's a there's a bunch of things there. So first thing to note about the federal target is that it is not a mandate, it's a target. So it's an aspirational kind of goal, um, but provinces are definitely not obligated to meet that in any way. So the leading provinces we see for EV registrations are British Columbia and Quebec. And these provinces also both have their own mandates, which is a much stronger um, form of, of policy in terms of uh, electric vehicle sales. They're also provinces with some of the longest standing incentives for purchasing electric vehicles. So the second part of your question was, you know, are provinces failing to meet, or sorry, is the goal that the federal government set out too ambitious? And I would say, well, you know, obviously no, because two provinces are meeting it. Mm-hmm. And in fact, Quebec is exceeding it. So it's not too ambitious, um, but it is also not a goal, or sorry, it is only a goal uh, nationally. What, what is the largest barrier to achieving this 10% target in the other provinces? Well, I mean, there is really no kind of inherent barrier, I don't think. I mean, we see it being achieved in British Columbia and Quebec, both with very different climates, um, but with a similar policy mix that should be incentivizing more EV registrations. So, I mean, the barrier in the other provinces is just the lack of policy incentives, right? Um, or policy frameworks rather to support uh, or to facilitate greater electric vehicle registrations. I should note that Ontario uh, has done in in the past quite well uh, in electric vehicle registrations, but since the ending of the incentive for purchasing electric vehicles has the the numbers have gone down, right? Um, More broadly nationally, um, you know, the challenge with having a national mandate uh, is that we can't ignore what's happening down south in the U.S. and we don't, we wouldn't want to. I, I don't think we would want to risk. Um, I, I, I should say we we wouldn't want to risk alienating manufacturers. Um, but I think there's a good opportunity now with the new uh, US administration coming into place that we could see some more North American focused uh, collaboration on something like this. So what do you mean uh, when you say we risk alienating manufacturers? So the way these policies work is that they set a target for the proportion of vehicle sales, new vehicle sales to be a certain amount of zero emissions vehicles. Um, which means that as that proportion gets higher, uh, the manufacturers need to have more electric vehicles available. And it might be the case that they just don't have them available. Uh, They don't have as many models available yet. Um, And so maybe it's possible that, I I don't know. I don't know if this is the case, I should be clear. But I think by setting a national mandate just alone in, in Canada, it you run the risk of of uh, of putting pressure on manufacturers to provide more electric vehicle models, which perhaps they're they you know would prefer not to do yet, or they would 
they wouldn't sell all their models in Canada. Right, or maybe they're, they're not ready yet. They're getting the technology ready, but it's still down the road. Um, is, there, is there a way for them to buy credits? Say if they, if they haven't met the target yet, but they're approaching it or you know, they know there's gonna be production coming up, can they buy credits in a sense as a temporary fix? Yes, my, that's my understanding of the policy, right? So mm -hmm. uh, a, a manufacturer that has a higher degree of electric vehicles as a portion of their fleet um, can then sell credits to manufacturers that don't. Well, that's actually really smart. Once again, you are listening to a discussion about the 2020 Canadian Provincial Energy Efficiency Scorecard with Dr. James Gady. We will continue our discussion after a short musical break. This is Holly Jolly Christmas by Michael Bublé. Have a holly jolly Christmas. It's the best time of the year. Now I don't know if there'll be snow, but have a cup of cheer. Have a holly jolly Christmas And when you walk down the street Say hello to friends you know And everyone you meet Oh, the mistletoe is hung where you can see Somebody waits for you Kiss her once for me Have a holly jolly Christmas and in case you didn't hear Oh by golly have a holly jolly Christmas this year It's hung where you can see Somebody waits for you Kiss her once for me Have a holly jolly Christmas And in case you didn't hear Oh, by golly, have a holly jolly Christmas This That was Holly Jolly Christmas by Michael Puple. Welcome back to Beyond the Headlines. The discussion about energy efficiency across Canada continues. Before the musical break, we were analyzing the report's findings about vehicle electrification in Canada. Remember, you can join us in the conversation by tweeting at us on Twitter at capital B. Y O N D underscore headlines. Okay, and um, my next question is about the interplay of electric vehicles and the building codes, which I thought was a super interesting part of your report. Um, so, do you see widespread adoption of support for electric vehicle and municipal bylaws 
or provincial building codes? Yeah, so let's refine your question. Do I see it yet or do I see it coming? Uh, do we see it coming? Uh, I don't see why not. So we don't see, we don't see it presently, um, but I don't see why it isn't something that could be incorporated into more uh, building codes or municipal bylaws. And there's two kind of ways to approach this, right? The building code might set out requirements for charging infrastructure within a building, but in some circumstances that might not work. For example, like a townhouse complex or something, um, or an apartment, in which case the requirement to have the infrastructure to support electric vehicle charging would have to take place outside of the building and therefore it wouldn't be really in the domain of the building code, but rather in like municipal bylaws. Oh, I see. So people that live in, in a large apartment building they park their car in the parking lot down the street and they need the city bylaw to, to essentially facilitate that there is a charging station there for them. Yeah, it could be something like that. So like a municipal bylaw typically would lay out like a, a specified number of parking spots for a, a multi-unit residential building, right? So just as it does that, it could also lay out requirements for a specified amount of charging points. Mm -hmm. Are there any municipalities that currently do this? I know your report card mostly focuses on provinces, but um, do yeah. you know anything about the municipalities? So I understand that this is actually the municipal bylaw approach is actually in effect in the city of Vancouver. Uh, but that is the only one that I'm aware of at this moment. Uh, my understanding is that most municipalities uh, across Canada have the ability to do this. Um, it helps to have the province you know, really explicitly say that this is something that, you know, that they can do, but, you know, they, they should have that ability to do it. And um, so there's not much stopping them from doing something like that. Okay. So now moving on to the last section, which is the conclusion, I wanted to talk about maybe a little more high level findings from your report with respect to the leading provinces and the lagging provinces. So Ontario and Alberta both saw reductions to their scores this year. Given the political affiliation of their governments and reluctance to spend money, what are some reasonable measures that Alberta and Ontario could take to improve energy efficiency without incurring large upfront costs? I know we've talked about, um, we've talked about the, uh, what is it called? Disclosure requirements for ratings, mm -hmm. that seems to mm -hmm. be a low cost option, but mm -hmm. is there anything else that stands out to you that these provinces could, uh, could jump on board with while, you know, respecting their political, uh, political agendas? Sure. So, you know, it's, it's an interesting question in that, you know, the government doesn't need to do, doesn't need to spend money to have you know, effective energy efficiency programming. Um, they just need to indicate that is that this is a priority. Typically, the funding for energy efficiency programming doesn't come from taxpayers. It comes from people that are, you know, ratepayers, people that are paying for electricity or natural gas. Um, and so therefore, the funding for energy efficiency programming doesn't necessarily hit on the government coffer, as it were, right? The other thing I would say about that is that we do see 
um, some government investment in energy efficiency um, in Alberta. So uh, Alberta has a industrial carbon pricing system called TIER, which I think stands for Technology Innovation Emissions Reduction. Um, so this is a renaming of uh, the industrial carbon pricing policy in Alberta that's been around since 2007. The proceeds of which go to emissions reductions in Alberta uh, and which can be used to support emissions reduction projects of which energy efficiency is theoretically one of them. Um, now I say, I say theoretically because it isn't specifically carved out uh, in the tier program, in the tier regulations that they can support energy efficiency, but it is certainly something that it could do. So simply just clarifying that proceeds like this can be used to support energy efficiency programming or energy efficiency investments is one thing. Similarly in uh, Saskatchewan, um, the government recently announced, I think it was $180 million of investment into improving energy efficiency in municipal and uh, municipal buildings and schools. So, you know, even in the, even in the, uh, in the provinces that, you know, that might have a conservative party government, we still see support for energy efficiency. I think the challenge in Alberta and Ontario isn't necessarily uh, a political one in that respect. Um, or concern about budget deficits, but just uh, not prioritizing energy efficiency and as a, as a resource that can be invested in, because that's really what it is, right? It's a resource, just like any other resource, natural resource that a province could choose to prioritize the development of. Speaking about priorities, the, the, the pandemic obviously is going on right now. How has that affected the uh, prioritization of energy efficiency policies. As you start your work for the next scorecard, do you see a big impact coming up? Yeah, so there, there's a lot here. Um, you know, it's something that we have to think about with our scorecard uh, because our scorecard tracks data from the year previous, which will be the this year, the pandemic year. So. You know, we won't know the full impact, I guess, of the pandemic on energy efficiency in, uh, until next year sometime. Um, but I think you do see some indication that provinces and the federal government are prioritizing energy efficiency as a way of investing in energy efficiency as a way of, you know, to use the phrase that everyone uses, to build back better, right? It's... Uh, it's particularly help. It's a particularly good opportunity to invest in, to create jobs, and uh, at the same time to, you know, reduce greenhouse gas emissions and make people's homes more comfortable. Given that we have to spend so much time in them now. Yeah, I don't think I've spent this much time at home ever. <laughs> yeah, well, I've worked from home for quite a while, so I'm quite used to it. But still. Quebec and British Columbia are both distinguished leaders again in the scorecard. What have they done to attain the best energy ratings and how can other provinces learn from them? So I think, you know, British Columbia, both provinces uh, prioritize energy efficiency. Both provinces have multiple different parties involved in 
administering and implementing parties or sorry programs so in british columbia you have the two utilities fortis bc and uh, bc hydro but also the government through its clean bc programs um, and in quebec you you have the two utilities again quebec hydro and energier and then also the teq uh, which is a government agency that administers uh, energy efficiency programming. Now that, you know, other provinces also have multiple utilities and government programs as well, but that's part of it. British Columbia is, uh, you know, performs well in most categories, um, but particularly in buildings, there's strength on the building code, the building code section of the scorecard, uh, a lot of which stems from the development of its own tiered code. And I think that that, you know, it's a good model for other provinces, but it's also, uh, you know, going to be what the next model code, the national, the federal national model code is going to be a tier code as well. So provinces can look to British Columbia as an example of the benefits of doing this and how to do it effectively. Quebec, on the other hand, uh, prioritizes uh, does really well in the in the transportation section, and that's partly because of what you know we talked about electric vehicle registrations before. They also score well in the natural gas savings because of the efforts of Energier and the TEQ. So I guess I would say that other provinces can look to British Columbia and Quebec as examples of having a comprehensive policy mix and broad support for energy efficiency that is uh, they, they set good models in that respect. So the natural gas savings, does that just refer to a reduction in the natural gas use that people are heating their homes with and switching to electrification instead? Not necessarily switching to electrification. So just like uh, for electricity savings, you know, if you install a more, a better light bulb, you're achieving electricity savings, right? Um, just like that on the natural gas side, you can install a more energy efficient natural gas furnace and achieve energy savings. Now you can also achieve fuel switching savings, which might be uh, replacing a natural gas furnace with uh, a heat pump. And we do see in both uh, BC and Quebec actually like support and interest in the electrification in this in this manner, um, more so in transportation in, in, in Quebec, I guess. Uh, so natural gas savings, yeah. I mean, the way that we do it in the scorecard is we we talk about natural gas savings as savings in natural gas. So that would be things that are you know not involving fuel switching, and then fuel switching is something separate. Mm -hmm. So, but in, in Quebec, you know, a lot of its natural gas savings do not come from the residential sector, it will come from industrial sector or commercial sector. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that they, uh, I suppose I never really consider what they use to heat a factory. <laughs> Pretty big space. Yeah. yeah, probably not baseboard heating. Um, okay, so the last question I wanted to ask was about enforcement. What enforcement tools could the federal government use to ensure compliance with Canada's energy efficiency goals. I know we just set a 3% target for energy efficiency um, in Canada to join the 3% club. Uh, and will these tactics be necessary? And if so, in which provinces and when should they be resorted to? Sorry, that's a lot of questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Well, you know, the thing is with energy efficiency, you know, we started off the, the discussion by noting that, you know, it's largely uh, something that's in the provincial jurisdiction. And so unlike maybe some other uh, areas of energy policy or climate change policy, the, the federal government doesn't necessarily like set a goal and then have to enforce compliance with it. They can set goals, which they obviously do, um, and but I think most of the efforts that they can they have taken to date and are likely to take are going to be more of uh, of carrots than sticks, as it were. Right? Um, incentives for provinces to come up to the standard that they're hoping for. So it's a little bit different than you know to say to take the example of carbon pricing, where they laid out their benchmark system and any provincial system had to meet that or exceed that and absent meeting it, then the federal government would impose it. So this doesn't exist in the energy efficiency world, um, but the federal government does have a lot of avenue for incentivizing and working together with the provinces as partners to build on the efforts that are already underway in all the provinces. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, that's actually interesting because I um, I never like seeing people have to use sticks, especially when it's a federal government using sticks against provinces. And I know they already have um, a contentious relationship over a lot of issues. So adding one more stick might, might not be a good thing. Um, but yeah, do you, as one final, final question, do you have any um, thoughts about next year's scorecard, things you might do differently, um, things that worked well this year that you're going to continue with? You know, we really think that the scorecard is providing a useful service to the country <laughs> and mm -hmm. people, people interested in energy efficiency. So, you know, we're excited definitely to continue working on it uh, next year and making improvements where we think they're necessary. I'm not sure if we know exactly where those improvements are just yet, um, but we do have some ideas of things that we wanna look into a little bit more. Uh, so to give you one example, I talked a little bit earlier about training and professionalization. And this is quite a big kind of complex policy issue. The scorecard presently addresses it by looking at the number of energy advisors and the number of certified energy managers in a province. Um, but of course, it, it could be a much wider domain of activities and initiatives that a province could be undertaking to support, to support training and professionalization in order to ensure effective implementation of its energy efficiency goals. So just what that kind of complex system looks like is one thing that we might look at uh, trying to expand upon in the scorecard. One thing that we do that we will be looking for is or be mindful of is the fact that the data from 2020 uh, may be impacted um, by the pandemic. And so we'll have to look at that and take that, you know, consider what that means for like the long-term trends. But overall, uh, you know, we're excited to do the scorecard again. We have a great network of supporters and people that work together with us to provide the information for the scorecard across the country. And we're excited to work with them again to get that information and you know, make it public and demonstrate the progress and the activities that people are doing in all the provinces.
And do you, you I know you, um, you've done some other interviews for the scorecard. What a, what a, what other groups have been interested? There's been coverage, I, I think, across all, like in every, in every province. You know, we get like, you know, one interesting thing that happened this year was uh, um, Saskatchewan, as you know, from reading it, scored last. And after the release of the scorecard, um, there a group from Saskatchewan reached out to us. I, I won't know the exact name. Saskatchewan Energy Management Task Force or something like that. And uh, yeah, so apparently this task force was set up like <laughs> there used to be task force in every province that were set up in the 70s in response to like the oil, OPEC oil embargo. And Saskatchewan's is the only one that continues to this day. So they invited us to come give us to give a little talk about energy efficiency in Saskatchewan. And it was a real interesting group of people. Like there was some, you know, people that, uh, you know, ac present academics, retired academics, former policymakers, people that did, you know, work a little bit with us on the scorecard. I think there was one fellow there that, uh, and I, I forget his name, but apparently he was, he built the uh, conservation house, which was like a very prominent energy efficiency demonstration house in Saskatchewan, I think in the seventies. So yeah, it was great. It was really neat to see like that community of people um, interested in seeing Saskatchewan doing better on energy efficiency. Yeah. Going back to the OPEC crisis, yeah. I feel like that would have been a good motivator for uh us to step up our game back in the 70s but I, well, I you know guess, that's uh, kind of when energy of like that that is really the origins of of the modern north american energy efficiency institutional system right um because <laughs> you know there was a, a big incentive to be energy efficient right and so i think that like if you you know you trace it back far enough and that's when when provinces and states first started kind of putting in place requirements for their utilities and their utility board regulators to consider energy efficiency as a resource alongside of, you know, what they might more traditional kind of supply side resources. Yeah. That might be an interesting research project. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting history. Dr. Gady, thank you for being with me today. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, sure. No problem. Thanks, Connor. I appreciate the opportunity. Once again, that was Dr. James Gady. You have been listening to Beyond the Headlines. Many thanks to James for helping us understand differences in energy efficiency across Canada. To read the 2020 Canadian Provincial Energy Efficiency Scorecard and access the associated database, along with Efficiency Canada's other amazing work, be sure to visit scorecard dot efficiencycanada.org Today's show was produced by Aaron Christensen and me, Connor Fraser. The views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers CUIT 89.5 FM or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. 
If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check out our podcasts and all of our other episodes on our website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net, as well as on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. If you're a fan of our show or want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at beyond underscore headlines. That's capital B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airwaves. Until next time, have a safe and Merry Christmas.